I have a vision problem. I, I don't, I, I'm bound by glasses. I, I, I don't want to get that LASIK thing. Um, I'm really t- totally scared of that. And so I don't see that well to begin with anyway. And, and, but it, it, it's just beyond that too. I mean, I can be seeing something. It can be literally right there in front of my face and I can totally miss it. Uh, this happens all the time. I open up the refrigerator and I say, Ooh. One more time, I go back through it and look, because I want to avoid asking. And finally, I say, hey, 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 babe, can, can you help me? I, can you help me find the mayonnaise? And she comes around there, looks in the refrigerator, and about eye level right there, she puts her hand on the mayonnaise. I just totally miss it. Can't see it. Uh, uh, several... Um, Weeks ago, I went looking for um, distilled water. And the distilled water that I normally buy at, uh, at Dollar General uh, comes in a jug like this. And so I went in looking for that, could not find it. I mean, and there was a lady at the register, and I did not want to humble myself and go ask her where it was. And I kept looking, and I kept looking, and I kept looking, could not find it. And then Finally, I went, the, the, the lady at the register left, and the guy came, and I thought, well, I can go ask a guy. <laughs> and so, so I went to him, I said, I, can't, I cannot find the still water. I, y'all got distilled water in He said, yes, we do, it's right over there. He pointed to it, I said, that's not distilled water. And he said, it is distilled water. And I went and I was real skeptical, I didn't think he knew what he was talking about. He was pointing to a bottle that looked like this. You see, I had it in my mind, a preconceived idea of what that distilled water was going to come packaged in. And I totally missed it. And here's the thing about the king. We have a preconceived idea about his kingship. And so often, in just reading the word that's right here before us, listening to the word preached or taught, in our community groups, uh, we can have our preconceived ideas and the word can be so clear about the nature of the king and we still miss it. It doesn't penetrate us. We don't see him for who he truly is. And here's the thing. Expectations. We can, we can expect a certain thing. We'd be looking for something and totally miss what we're looking for. Because our expectations are, are altered. They're not pure. They're, 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 they're bent. They're marred by our own personal experience in life. They're marred by, by our mental images of what we're expecting. And so we're going to look today. We're going to look at Jesus the King and realize that he is not, not often what we expected He is so amazingly better. If we are not careful, we could very well miss the beauty of his kingship. Just prior to the text we're going to be looking at in Matthew chapter 21, uh, there's a section of scripture beginning in verse 29 that goes through verse 34. And Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. and, And there's these two blind men and they cry out. Blind men cry out. They cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They were expecting him to be the Messiah. They saw him as a Messiah. They were physically blind, but yet they could see. 
And Jesus is going to Jerusalem and blind men could see him. And, and Jesus goes into Jerusalem and for the most part, the city of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem reject Jesus. And two days later, Jesus weeps over the fact that Jerusalem could not see him. Yet the indictment is that two blind men could. And we have all the knowledge that we are given. The people around us are exposed to the gospel and yet they do not see. Maybe you do not see. And maybe you've forgotten. Maybe your experiences have tainted you and, and you have not appreciated the beauty of Jesus' kingship. Jesus goes to his own, the word says. He was in the word, in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Here's the thing about kings. Our literature is full of books that have been written about the beauty of kings, somebody coming to rescue and deliver us. Our movies are full of this picture. It might not necessarily be the picture of one individual raising up, but a group of people that would raise up to, to take away the oppression, to set people free. Our literature and our heart, the reason why these movies, they come out and they're repeat movies and they're sequels to these movies and they're box office hits. It's because there is a longing in the heart of every mind. Every one of us is looking for a good king. I heard a story recently about, about a, a man who, who had, several years ago, he had the opportunity to watch a TV series. And it, was about, it was based on Shakespeare's Henry V, not Henry VIII, but Henry V. He was, he was enamored with the character. He was, he, he was amazed by this character, the way they portrayed him. So he, he thought he'd look into a little biographical material about Henry V, and he found out he was not a perfect king. I mean, our world is full of people in history. We could just look back. People just thought that they were the greatest leader in the world and they turned out to be a devil in disguise. Our hearts long for a king. Your heart longs for a king. Maybe you went into a relationship thinking that this person was going to deliver you. They were going to save you. They were going to make your life great and perfect. No, it doesn't work that way. Your heart longs for a perfect king. And your heart will never be satisfied till you find the perfect king. We're going to look at and talk about the perfect king today. I want us to see the picture of the beauty of a king, a true king, an infinitely better king than all the kings. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. 
and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches and trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him and that followed him and were shouting, Hosanna, which means save, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, Jesus is orchestrating something here. Uh, My general picture before I studied this and uh, recently uh, was that, that basically Jesus rides into Jerusalem and Jerusalem comes out to greet him. That is not exactly what happened. And what we have happening here is a very unique thing. Bethage, Bethage was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's like a suburb. And next to it is Bethany. And the unique thing about Bethany is that that was the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And Jesus often would spend time in Bethany. So he was very familiar with uh, Bethage and because it was an area that he would go through to get to Bethany. And, and, and it's just they're small villages side by side to one another. So he would be very familiar with this area. And this is one of the places where people saw exactly what Jesus did in the raising of Lazarus, the man who was dead. And they were ready to make him a, a king at that moment. It tells us in John's gospel. And, and so they really believed in him. The people in that area, they really believed in, in him. And so what Jesus is doing here, I, I honestly believe this. You might disagree with me. But I think he is orchestrating a confrontation. You see, in the past, Jesus had shied away with the opportunity Uh, to proclaim publicly his messiahship. His his disciples saw it, and and others in his close circle saw the reality that he was the messiah. They confessed that reality, but he didn't declare them. And in fact, in John's gospel in chapter 6 and verse 15, after the feeding of the 5,000, the scriptures tell us this, perceiving then, that is Jesus, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He got away. He got away from that temptation. It was too early. It was not the right timing. It was not the time for him to die. And so what Jesus is doing, he's sending his two disciples to the very area where he was most believed in, one of the most uh, the areas that he was most believed in. And he, and he told them this interesting thing. He says, if anyone says to you, who sh- uh, you shall say, um, the Lord needs them, 
and he will send them at once. There's a lot of debate about this particular passage by scholars. They're kind of like going, now, was this something miraculously happened or, or what was going on here? What, would, would Jesus actually take something from people? They're going to go up and tie and going to pull it away. Oh, and by the way, if you're caught taking it away, is that, is that what's happening? No, that's not what's happening here. He gave the disciples an opportunity to say to them, and the disciples would have been well known as persons to this community. The Lord has need of it. Oh, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has. And there would be a crowd that would be engaged that would come. Some of them would be familiar with the, the prophecy in the Old Testament. A prophecy found in a couple of passages uh, uh, in, 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 in uh, I believe it's one in Isaiah, and uh, basically saying that the Messiah would come on a donkey. And so here it is, the crowd would come out. And, and, and if you read through this text, go to verse 16, the, I mean, excuse me, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the coat. Now, notice this progression of people uh, along with it. They brought the donkey and the coat and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and, and, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. And by the way, we get the idea of Palm Sunday. That's from John's account where they brought out palm branches. Verse 6, And the crowds went before him and that followed him. So there were crowds that were in front declaring this, what, uh, this Hosanna. There were crowds in the back. And then look down in verse 10, it says, And when he entered Jerusalem. So this crowd was already with him. My idea in the past has been that when he entered in Jerusalem, all the people came pouring out. No, Jesus brought the crowd with him, declaring these praises. And Jerusalem, their response can be summed up in verse 11. And the crowd said, uh, excuse me, in uh, verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Who is this guy? Well, who's making all this racket? What, what's, what's this all about? And this is the very city. And just a couple of chapters later, just a day later, Jesus would be weeping over because the city of Jerusalem had rejected him. He was forcing a confrontation. Jesus is confronting Jerusalem with the issue that he is Lord, that he is king. Either crown him or kill him. Nothing in between. He's not settling for people just to like him. Oh, Jesus, he's okay. I'm okay with Jesus. There is no room for that in-between position. Either he is king, he is saying, or kill me. He was forcing the issue. You see, Jesus hates lukewarmness. We, we read about this in Revelation chapter 3. It leaves him sickened. Luke Wharton and Ormness doesn't care for it. Either be hot or be cold. But lukewarm? No. There's no place for it. 
You see, we resist the lordship of Christ. We are people in America that are proud of our independence that we declared politically from England, and we should be in so many ways. But the reality is, is that independence as an individual is reflected in oftentimes in our hearts and lives as our rebellion against the lordship of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul relates a particular story of his, of, of a British friend of his that, that came from England to be a pastor in America, in the Philadelphia area. And when he arrived, uh, some of the people from the church took him around and showed him uh, different places, Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell, and, he, and they told him stories of the revolution and introduced, introduced him uh, to embracing his new home in America. But he went to, they took him to an antique store that specialized in Americana. And among the items that was there, there were things, placards that said things like, no taxation without representation. Don't tread on me. But the placard that caught his attention was this, we serve no sovereign. We serve no sovereign. Later on, he told R.C. Sproul, he said, that sign stopped me in my tracks. I had left my native land and come across the Atlantic Ocean in response to a call to ministry, a vocation to be a minister of the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom of God. But on seeing this sign, I was filled with fear and consternation. I thought, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to people who have a profound aversion to the king. Jesus realized the struggle that we face. The struggle of, of, of submitting to ourselves to, to, to God, the king. Or, or serving other things and being torn he said it this way in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's no place. I remember uh, prior to my coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that, that personal struggle in my life, the picture I had was uh, I considered myself to be a religious person. I, I would go to church on occasion. I would, I would do religious things. I would do my time. But I, it had its limits. It had its place. But the rest of the week, that was for me. And that's the way... I wanted it to be. I remember sitting in a bar talking with a couple of guys that grew up in church with me. And um, they were talking about the fact that they didn't feel like that, that, that what they were doing was right. And, and, and their way they were living. And that um, one day they're going to settle down, so to speak, is the language they were using. Well, I, I, I justified myself before them. I said, there's nothing wrong with the way we're living. And, and I, I tried to bring up biblical arguments of it. I went as far as this, by the way. I even argued with the fact that there are many ways to God. But you see, as a child, I had been exposed to the Scriptures. I had been exposed to memorizing Scripture as a child. 
And I was taken back in my heart during that period in my life. Constantly this battle was going on with this, this way I was trying to justify myself, my immorality before God. And that, that possibly there were other ways to God. There's one inescapable passage I could not get away from. The very words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 14 and verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I remember the day I, was, I believe I was converted, that I was genuinely placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, it, was, it was a struggle. And I remember coming to the conclusion that all these things that were idols in my life, if, I, if I'd never slept with another woman, if I'd never uh, got drunk again, if I'd never, all these things that were over here, if I lost all of my friends, all of these things, I would follow Jesus. The Lord graced me with the preciousness that I could see that his lordship over my life was so much better than me trying to be my own personal lord to be in control of my own life. Jesus confronts us. You've got to choose. You've got a choice. We live in a time and a land where often the words are, I don't have a choice. You have a greater choice than you realize. You see, we see in this passage the beauty of the reality of Jesus' kingship in our lives. He confronts us with the reality of his lordship. But also, we see in this passage, the beauty of Jesus' kingship is that he serves us. Uh, Look with me at this prophecy that is recorded for us in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Your king is coming, humble, on a donkey. And I've got a question for us this morning. Who comes as a conqueror? And they were spreading all these these leaves and these branches before Jesus and their cloaks before him because that's the way you honor a king, a triumphant king. And they were doing this, and yet he comes in on a donkey. Who comes in that way? No great warrior king comes in that way. He comes in on a white horse on a steed, just a majestic, awesome creature, powerful. And he comes riding in that way. The people who come riding on the donkey are the people behind him. They're the servants. And Jesus is coming in as a servant. He is the king servant. An amazing thing. It's hard for our our minds to wrap around that reality. He is every bit king. He is every bit servant. Amazingly, that's what he is. And if we're not careful, we can recognize his kingship and miss the reality that he comes to serve. To serve you individually in a way that you cannot serve yourself. Matthew's gospel in chapter 20 
in verse 25 through 28, records this, this argument that's going on between the disciples and Jesus. And basically the disciples are just saying, Hey, Lord, you're going to have this great kingdom one day, this earthly kingdom. We want to sit at your right and your left. And Jesus warns them and he, he says to them, But Jesus called all the disciples to himself. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over you. That is from the top down. They are your masters from the top down. You are there to serve him and their great ones exercise authority over them so there's even greater masters over the ones and they everybody serves them underneath he goes on to say in verse 26 it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. He is the king servant. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, the night before Jesus would die, the scriptures record that he, he rose up from the supper, that is the Lord's Supper, and sharing with them, he laid aside his, his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. That would be the image of what a servant would have done for each and every one of them as they gathered in. Somebody was, was to be the servant there. There was no servant there to wash them. Nobody had done it. And Jesus picks up on that reality and he goes and he serves each and one, one of them. He wipes the disciples' feet. And he came to Peter. And Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him. He said, yeah, uh, answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And what Peter was saying, you are not to serve me. And Jesus' response was this, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus said, Peter, if you will not let the king serve you, you're not going to have a future. See, oftentimes I hear people try to describe what Christianity is. And we end up talking about what we've done for God. And what we do for God. And all of that is glorious and it's wonderful. But the essence of Christianity first and foremost is not what we do for God. It's what God does for us. That's the gospel. It's not about us. It's about him serving us. Jesus comes lowly. He comes humble. And there's some of you that are determined to do this thing, to do this Christianity on your own. You want your own way. You want to devise your own ways. You want to, you want to treat the Word of God as some kind of buffet where you like a lot of this and not too sure about this and this. What You will not submit to the reality of His Lordship. And not only that, you're doing it your own way. You think somehow you're going to be able to stand before God on your own. And Jesus says to you, listen, listen, my friend. Jesus says to you, you can't do it on your own. Give up. Let the king serve you. 
And then there's also the beauty of Jesus' kingship is that he is the lamb. He is the king lamb. He is the king and he comes as a lamb to save us. Who comes in on a donkey? I ask us again. Who comes in on a donkey into battle? I had one commentator that put it this way. Anybody coming in on a donkey, basically they're roadkill. They're sacrificed. They're slaughtered. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey because he was coming to be slaughtered. The focus of the, of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's amazing what portions of each one of those books are dedicated to the very last week of Jesus' life. Because each one of the gospel readers wants us to not miss the point of why Jesus came. That's the reason why observance of this week is so important for us in the church calendar. Because we realize the focus of Christ's mission is that he came to die, to be buried, and to be raised again for our sins. To die the death we should have died. You see, in Matthew's gospel, nearly 29% of, those go- of the gospel is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. Mark's gospel is 38%. Luke's gospel is 25% dedicated of the chapters there in Luke's gospel are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. In John's gospel, nearly 48% of John's gospel is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. See, if we, we, we can be inspired by Jesus' example and what he does, but folks, if we don't get what he has come to do for us, we miss it. He is the king who's come to save. And, and, and these people, they cry out, Hosanna! They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And in the past, maybe I thought this to some extent. I'm thinking, you know, what a fickle crowd. You know, one week they're praising him for being savior. The next week they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. I'm not too sure that's the case. I honestly think this group of people had genuine faith in Christ for the most part. I'm sure there might have been some that didn't. But for the most part, the people came from Bethany. They came from Bethphage. And they were genuine believers coming into Jerusalem. And and, and the thing about this is that one other reason why I think it was so genuine. Luke's parallel account for this. Luke's parallel account of of the disciples coming in and praising Jesus as he's coming in on the triumphal entry. Uh, Some of the Pharisees went to Jesus and to the disciples and, and said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And this is what Jesus said. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, now, here's the thing. When I've looked at this passage in the past, when I th- think about that stones crying out, I think about, oh, wow, how miraculous stones crying out to God. That is not what Jesus was saying. 
He doesn't want us marveling over stones crying out to God. What Jesus was marveling at, there was something miraculous happening. People recognizing him as Savior. And they were crying out Savior. And he was pleased with that. It was, it was awesome. It was beautiful. It was miraculous. And he was enamored with the reality of the fact that the people were crying out to him. And I, I couldn't help but as we were singing this morning... Thinking about that reality and what a privilege to praise God. What a privilege to see Him as worthy, not of, of just of our songs and our praise, but of a life lived for Him. What a privilege to live in awe of God. And folks, I'm telling you, that is a miracle. That is a miracle. Don't take worship for granted. Don't take those moments for granted when our hearts are turned afresh to Him and living out the day-by-day life of following Him in obedience to Him in a life of worship. Don't take that for granted. It is a miracle. It is a gift from God. Savor it. And thank God for that. Jesus would serve us ultimately by becoming the Lamb. John the Baptist introduced Jesus at the beginning. And he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He introduced him that way. But the amazing thing, if you go to the book of Revelation, God's people in eternity future have never gotten over the reality that he is the lamb. He is the king and he is the lamb. The book of Revelation gives us a vision of that. In Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10, John recorded these words. He said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Folks, he's still a Lamb. His nature and his identity is a Lamb. Clothed in white robes, And in their hands were palm branches, and they were waving and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He is the King, and He is the Lamb. We all serve somebody or something. Maybe you're a mother here today and you've got small children and you have this perfect image of what a mother should be and you are laboring and you are working so hard to live up to what that image is. You're trying to serve that Lord. You're trying to serve that master and that master is whipping you 
to death because you've got this perfect image that you feel like you've got to live up to. I'm telling you, there is one here today who loves you. It is Jesus. He accepts you. He accepts you of your imperfections and your falling short. Will you turn to him? And give him your burdens. Will you exchange that idol, that perfection model that you're trying for and trust him? Some of us have control problems. I've been accused of that. And I think rightly so. Of trying to control people because I wanted to be controlled. I wanted things to work the way I wanted them to work. I wanted people to act the way I wanted them to act. And so I would manipulate. I would work. I would, I, would, I would do all kinds of things. I'd lose sleep over trying to control people. The fact of the matter is, ultimately, deep down in every one of our hearts, changing people is not something I can do. That is a divine task. That is something that only God can do. It takes divine intervention. To change a heart. How do we respond to people? Well, here's the amazing, wonderful aspect of this. When we see Jesus as as the king who is the lamb, who has come to serve us, who confronts us with the reality of his lordship. If the gentle king comes into your life, he can change you into gentle royalty from his family. Someone sins against you. You can, by God's grace, Serve them as you have been served. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Love and be patient with them as the king has stooped to be patient with you. Colossians, the Apostle Paul really grasped this reality, this vision of Jesus loving and serving us. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, the scripture says, Paul says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, as those been made a part of his royal family, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I mean, I could take a survey this morning and say, how many of you had problems with patience lately? I imagine every one of us would raise our hand. That's me. That's me. And he says, reality of, 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 of dealing with impatiences in our lives, he gives us a cure for that. He says, to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, if you're upset and you're just about had it to right here with other people, the advice for us is to forgive each other. Listen, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. We are commanded to forgive. It's a command. So how in the world can I come? I can't do that. Then you need to step back. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you need to step back and let Jesus serve you afresh with the reality of your forgiveness. First of all, you probably have a vision problem. You don't see the weight of your sin. You don't see the heaviness of your sin, your offense against God. You don't see how big it is. You're not amazed that God would forgive you of your sin anymore. Because if you are amazed that God would forgive you of your sin, that he would go to the cross and suffer in your place, then you would back away and be amazed and you would be humbled by that reality. And you would pass on that same grace that's been given to you. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Be patient as the Lord has been patient with you. 
You see, the root of all sin is this. Think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Sin is the servant. Adam and Eve were put here to serve God. Uh, sin is the servant putting him or herself in the place of the king. That's what they did. They rose up and they said, I'm going to be king. I'm going to be in control. I'm going to determine what's right and wrong. But listen, the opposite of that is this. Salvation is the king putting himself in the place of the servant. That's the kind of king we serve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity you've given us to come and to open your word to see afresh the reality of your kingship. And I thank you, Lord God, that in that kingship, you have promised us the reality that you will confront us. You love us too much to just let us go. And Lord God, um, the reality is that we need to be confronted, not just in the past, but presently and continually, Lord God. And there's some of us uh, dealing with your confrontation, the work of your spirit in their life, convicting them that they're, they're outside the bounds of your lordship. And the greatest way, the greatest way to true happiness, Lord God, is for them to ultimately submit to the one true king who cares ultimately for them, Lord God. Father, we need to allow you to serve us. Some of us are trying to earn our way to heaven. Lord, we'll never do that. There's, there's no way. There's a complete and total rejection of any part on our, our in terms in terms of saving us. We must depend on your work at the cross on our behalf alone. And Lord, help us to trust you as the all-sufficient lamb. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Thank you for your word. Help us to turn to you in saving faith, in trusting faith, in living faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.